over the past year, really the last couple of years, I've uh, had to minister to some people who really doubted the goodness of God and the isolation that some of the people felt. Uh, Many people in poverty, um, people who really didn't have resources to bring any form of entertainment into their life. Um, And, you know, we can get lost in those things as well. We can get lost in them. But during this COVID year, there have been young Christians who found themselves in a wilderness and asking the question, if God is in charge, isn't he incompetent? You say, well, that's blasphemy. But, you know, um, many of us, we look at the stages of faith when we're outside of the faith, and then we commit our life to Christ. No one is prepared for the time of, of, of the wilderness where God is working in our hearts to get rid of the things that were so much a part of us in Egypt and so much of a desire to go back to the way things were. God is calling us to a stage of worshiping him no matter what. No matter what. And so I want us to look at the gospel according to Joseph. And um, next week or the following, um, I'm hoping to print up some things to give to you to see what similarities there are between the life of Joseph, the ministry of Joseph, and that of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is preparatory. And so we're going to look at Joseph, and I'm going to ask you in the coming week to read the chapters Genesis 37 to Genesis 51. Read the entirety of it. I'm not going to be preaching on every chapter. Um, Chapter 38 is going to be a head-scratcher. I am not going to preach on that next Sunday. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. Uh, I do have a sermon on it, but I'm not going to preach it here. So read those those chapters, and this morning we're going to look um, at Genesis 37. And let me begin, before I read, to say that back in 1979, um, I took a backpacking trip to Mount St. Helens in the Cascade Range of the Pacific Northwest. And if you're like me, you look at a mountain and you see uh, nothing like the permanence and stability of a mountain. But if you look at a picture of St. Helens in May of 1980, I was there in June of 1979, I'm here today to testify to this. Because if I had been where I was, nine months later, um, I'd be in heaven. The mountain blew its top. As great as that mountain looked, inside there was something brewing, something that was going to blow the top off the mountain and make it unrecognizable. And that description fits the family of Jacob. Large, prosperous, established, but there was something brewing that not everybody recognized that was going to blow the top off. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. 
Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him at his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you actually intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, I'm going to stop there. And uh, i got to come back to this, because we're going to look at portions of this entire chapter. Now the first thing we see is in verse 3. Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. And in between the lines, we also have to recognize that Jacob, and he loved Rachel, and Rachel and Jacob had two children Uh, Joseph and Benjamin. The story is a bit complicated, but here it is in a nutshell. Jacob grew desperately lacking the love and affirmation of his dad. His father Isaac clearly preferred his brother Esau over him. And the resulting inner neediness drove Jacob's life. You remember that he flees to Uncle Laban and there meets Rachel and he utterly fixes his heart on Rachel. Jacob looked at Rachel and said something like this in his heart, If I had her, oh, would I be happy. He ended up marrying her and they had those two sons. Joseph then became the emotional center of Jacob's life. Jacob Jacob gave him a richly ornamented coat, better known as the coat of many colors. We're reminded of that when Dolly Parton sings. But the key word is rich. Jacob lavished money on Joseph in a way that he didn't with the other boys. In other words, it, it looks as though, if you read between the lines, Joseph had become the idol of Jacob's life, the central source of his love and joy. And as a result of this, it poisoned the entire family system. Now look what happened to Joseph. In that day, in that culture, the older did not bow down to the younger. It was always that the younger bowed down to the elders, even to the elder brothers, But here it's the exact opposite, and it's almost like God is saying to us, uh, I have something else in mind. 
I'm going to turn things upside down, and what you expect is not what's going to happen. And then, there are these dreams. Now, God had a dream, and we're going to see that right from the beginning. God had a dream, and he was going to fulfill his purposes, but in the middle of this story, nobody knows what that dream is, really. Now, Joseph comes to his brothers and says, you know, you're all going to bow down to me. And they hated him. Another, it almost sounds like he is becoming a sociopath. He is pathologically insensitive to the impact of his behavior on other people. He's becoming arrogant and cruel at the age of 17. And remember, Jacob adores him, but when he shares the second dream, it says that Jacob rebukes his son. Three times the brothers, it says, hate him. Hate is growing in their hearts. There's a lava that's going to blow the top off their lives. And what we see here is underneath what looks like a nice, prosperous family is hidden, the hidden depth of brokenness and sin that are going to destroy this family unless God intervenes. These brothers were oblivious to God's hand in their actions. They don't know and they don't care. Now let me, we're starting with the point, the hidden depths of sin. And what is happening in this family? And as you read through it, you're going to see some stuff that's going to make you scratch your head. Um, My wife and I are hoping that we can make a trip to Beaver Island while we're here. I've never been to Beaver Island. I've been to some other islands. The most well-known one, Mackinac. But I got on, I googled um, Beaver Island and and, and I noticed, I was, here I am thinking about how polygamy, every time it's mentioned in the scriptures, it's disastrous. Polygamy is not God's design. And yet, even the patriarchs, the people that he called to himself to represent himself to the world, took many wives. And I noticed that there was a cult on Beaver Island led by a man named, called himself St. James was a polygamist, and things didn't turn out so well for him. You tell me after the service whether I should still go. <laughs> Let me just share a couple of practical things before we move on to point two. I want you first to note that there is not a page in the Bible that doesn't give us the contrast between religiosity and the gospel or traditional religion and the gospel. The traditional religion says, here are the rules for right living, here are the heroes of the faith, the stories of their lives, now live like them and God will bless you. Now go to it. That's religion. But where are the heroes of the faith in this story? Where are all the great examples on how to live and bring up children? Do you find anything in this story on how to raise children? There's hate and bitterness and brokenness upon brokenness, and it is going to get worse. 
The Bible is not mainly trying to teach us how to give, live good lives. If it was, we, would we be reading the story of Joseph today? I mean, you can find some pretty good ways how not to raise children. But do you think that the author wrote this down so that we could know how to have better families? Maybe. The Bible's purpose is not so much to show you how to live a good life, but to show you how grace, God's grace, breaks into your life against your will and saves you from your sin and brokenness that you would otherwise not be able to overcome. Oftentimes we talk about the trajectory of sin. I'm a hunter, and I aim at a target, and sometimes my arrow falls short of the target. Sometimes I miss, most often miss the target altogether. But if you read Romans chapter 3, you find that the trajectory of sin is not just missing the mark or falling short of the glory of God, or of, of the goal. It is running away from God. It is running in another direction saying, I don't want you to be a part of my life. And even on the surface of things, those of us who are religious say, I'm good enough and I'm entitled enough for God's blessing upon my life, but I don't want the gospel. And the second thing, and this is a hard one, our world does not like this. Sin and grace tends to run in families. You didn't like your parents' sins and character flaws? Guess where they are now? Or you've done everything possible to be utterly different from your parents. In either case, you're not just the product of your own choices. You're not a self-made person. The things that you have done and the things that have been done to you are, every, are, are equally important as to what makes you who you are right now. And here's what this means. You did not get into your troubles just by individual choices. The problems in your life, the flaws, the bad habits came through bad relationships. Did you know that you will never come to understand what's wrong with you unless someone else points it out to you? Do you understand that? And, and isn't it interesting that this is one of the most difficult things for us to do in the church of Jesus Christ, where we are to love each other unconditionally, and I know how hard this is, but we are out to try to point to another person and say, here are your faults, but is it done in love? I had a mentor in Grand Rapids North when I just got out of seminary, and I had one of these little pocket Bibles, and it had all of these inserts with answers because I thought that broken people want answers. And my mentor said, Mike, you're not going to get to first base with these people unless they know you love them. Don't come to them with answers. Come to them with love. And even though they may be unlovable, they are in this body of Christ for a reason. And that goes for every last person in the church. We should be able to have people examine our lives and in love say, you know what, there's something that, that you need to change. I had a brother in seminary whose name was Ted. And Ted and I became very good friends. And Ted says, Mike, I give you permission to correct me and to point out difficulties in my life that are keeping me from becoming the pastor I should be. 
And one day we're playing basketball. The man elbows me right in the ribs. I fall on the floor, and after the game, I said, that wasn't right. And he said, Mike, that hurts so good. And I said, no, it doesn't. It hurts so good. You know what I'm saying? Sin is, is prevalent in this family, and the only way things are going to get better is someone intervenes, and we're going to find God, the grace of God, ricocheting through this family, doing things that they didn't expect in order for them to become the body of Christ, in order, order for them to come to understand the grace. We do not live up to each other's expectations, and we can go to our graves holding grudges. And lacking forgiveness. And Jesus says, this is one of the primary ways that people are going to see that I live amongst you. The hidden depths of sin, it's here, and you're going to see more of it. But secondly, the hidden purposes of God. Underneath the surface of sin, God is at work under the surface things. Now, you look at these dreams And then you look at what I call coincidences or chance happenings. Uh, First of all, you got the, the dreams. I talked about the dreams. And then you have uh, the coincidences. Let me talk about that a moment. But let's read about it first. Now his brothers, verse 12, had gone to graze their flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to to him, Go and see it is all well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and and asked him, What are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they graze their flocks? They've moved from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him, throw him into one of these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue Uh, Joseph from their hands. But let's not take his life, he said. Okay, I'm going to come back to verse 25 in a minute. Oh boy. I don't know how you'd feel. But let's say that your brother is coming out to find you at the command of your father and you're driving up on a camel named Mercedes. They hated this kid. You know, everything about him says privilege. Father's favorite son. The guy that we're going to bow down to one day. How in the world could we see the purposes of God in this? But, But what we find are a bunch of coincidences. The brothers decide to go to Dothan, and uh, to Shechem, and they're not in Shechem. They go to Dothan. Uh, Joseph happens to come to the place where they had been, just happens to run into a stranger who happens to overhear the brothers say, let's go to, uh, to Dothan. 
Then when Joseph appeared, they grabbed to kill him. His brother Reuben just happens to be there to keep them, him from being killed, but happened not to be there when they sold him into slavery. Nothing, nothing here makes sense. Unless, but everything happens according to God's direction. If Joseph had not been killed, but had not been sold, if Joseph had been killed, but not sold, if Joseph had not been killed or sold, unless everything happened exactly the way it was going to happen, just in that order, everybody dies. Because a famine is on the way, and Joseph has to be put in a place where he has power. Every little detail... Every one of the coincidences couldn't have been a coincidence. If any one of them didn't happen, not only does the family die, but hundreds of thousands of other people die in a horrible famine, and the whole messianic line, the whole line of God saving the world, would die too. Because God had a dream. God had a purpose. He was going to accomplish it. You've had things happen in your life, and you've said, I wonder if God was involved in that. How could it be? At the time when I'm struggling, I don't see it, but here are the hidden purposes of God. Maybe some of you have heard this story. Reverend Tim Keller, retired pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, claims that the reason he became pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church was because of Watergate. He says Watergate is the reason he became pastor. Now briefly, what this meant was, he was, I believe, in uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and there was an English pastor, Presbyterian minister, who was having a great impact on him, but he couldn't get his green card. And they were going to ship him back to England. And Tim was brokenhearted about it because he, he sat at the feet of this, this wonderful theological, biblical teacher. Well, at this time, some guys are breaking into the Democratic Committee offices in Washington, D.C. A security guard notices it's going on. These guys get arrested. And you know the story. President Nixon ends up resigning. And who becomes president? Gerald R. Ford. In seminary, at the time Tim Keller was there, was a man named Mike Ford, one of the sons of Gerald Ford. And Mike raised his hand in class and says, I think I know someone who might help you get a green card. And a week later, he got his green card. And Tim Keller, through the rest of his seminary career, sat at the feet of this man, became a Reformed believer, and became the pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church. The the under-the-surface God is at work. But if you look carefully at this passage, you find that God never speaks. He isn't even referred to. God seems to be completely absent. Have you had times in your life when you've prayed and you've longed for an answer from God God and heaven seems silent? Though God seems to be completely absent on the surface, he's managing down to the minutest detail, everything that happened, all the things that seemed to make no sense at all. Every single one of them had to help happen for the salvation of this family. What do we learn under this point? 
God's redeeming love is completely compatible with terrible things, with disappointments happening in the lives of those he loves. And I know that television preachers and evangelists of the health, wealth, and prosperity sort tell you something quite different. They say, if God is at work in your life, you're going to see it manifested in good health and lots of wealth. But that's not coming out of this story, folks. Now, God has a plan. God is going to turn things around. He's going to provide in amazing ways. But here, his redeeming love is compatible with disappointment. There's brutality here. Joseph is stripped. The word there in the Hebrew is of, 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 of field dressing, skinning an animal. They threw him, and it describes the dumping of a dead body into a grave. This is distressing. And Joseph, we find later, is pleading for his life, crying out, it says in in chapter 42, crying out for help, crying out for love, for compassion. But if everything hadn't happened just the way it happened, everyone would have been lost. Now, I don't know about you, I've had troubles with this kind of teaching And uh, I've often thought, wouldn't it have been easier if God had sent a beautiful angel? If an angel would have appeared, everyone would have been smitten and fallen to the ground. And the angel says, I have come from the Lord, and you are a spoiled brat. And you brothers have become full of hatred. Murder is about to happen here. I'm here to stop. And you, Jacob, have messed up your family. You have followed your desires for women, and you are seeing the implications of that. After being touched by an angel, everyone would look and, at each other and hug each other and say, I am so sorry. Folks, this is the Bible. This isn't touched by an angel. The fact of the matter is, if an angel shows up and tells you about your sins, it typically wouldn't work. Nobody ever learned about their faults by being told. They have to be shown. Life has to show you. Nobody actually ever learns that God loves you by simply being told you have to be shown. Again, complications. Things that you wonder about. Peter is in prison and he prays to God. A couple of angels show up and he walks right on out free. John the Baptist is preaching Jesus Christ. He gets put in jail. He prays for release and has his head cut off. Is God loving John the Baptist less? Are God's purposes being more worked out through Peter? than John the Baptist? I mean, if you think about Dothan, in a couple hundred years, Dothan would become a city, and the Elisha, the prophet, goes there with his servant. The whole city is surrounded by an Aramean army, and they're going to die. Elisha cries out to God, and what happens? An angel army appears. That's the God that I want. I want to pray and I want to have this solved. 
But Elisha calls out from the pit, as it were, cries to God, uh, and the Lord smites the enemy with blindness. And you say, that's the kind of God, that's my idea of how prayer is supposed to work. You cry out from the pit, please save me. And he sends chariots of fire, immediate action. But wait a minute, same Bible, same God, same place, two people crying out, save me, I'm about to die. In one case, nobody comes. In the other case, the heaven is full of saviors. I've had lots of questions, as Andre Crouch has said in his song. I've had lots of questions, not just about tomorrow, but about today. And I don't know how many times the Lord hasn't brought me back to Isaiah chapter 55, 8 and following. Because there are times when I wonder. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the, the, Jesus talks about heaven and he talks about hell and he talks about judgment. Subjects that are not popular today. Progressive Christians are leading us away from the truth of the gospel. And I, I, I get back to Isaiah chapter 55. And I think you and I need to do this regularly. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. As the rain comes down and waters the earth, making things grow, so is my word. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. How much stronger would we be in faith if we truly believe that? If we recognize that, yes, God is at work. My family's not going quite the way I thought it should go. What if we believe that God is still at work? What if we believe that God hears the prayers of his children? I went through a period of time in college where I was drinking myself to death. Every bit of extra money I had, I used alcohol. And I remember I would leave in my hot rod Camaro and I would go out to parts unknown. When I would come back in the wee hours of the morning, I found my father on his knees. And you know who he was praying for? He was praying for a son who didn't give a rip about God's purposes. I remember one time when I was 21, I said to my mom, I've got my life all figured out. By the time I graduate from college, I'm going to have a business degree. By the time I'm 23, I'm going to have a good income. By the time I'm 24, I'll be married and I'll begin a family. And my mother looked at me like, who raised you? And I remember she, if my mom could read the riot act, read the riot act that day and said, Mike, you are not God and you do not know the purposes of God. And you do not know right now, what God wants to do in your heart. Think of how strong you'd be if you truly believed that God is at work, that God loves you, and that the stubbornness of the human heart is something that doesn't just change with a snap of a finger. Sin is insidious. God has a dream for your glory, just like he has a dream for their salvation. And it's all over. And after they're in the middle of it, I mean, everything looks stupid and ridiculous. Here we are in the middle of God's program for Joseph, and it still looks ridiculous. But do you believe that you really cannot ultimately mess up your life 
if you belong to him. Now let me read the rest of this. Okay, verse uh, 25, or 22. Uh, Reuben says, don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said to this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites, otherwise known as Midianites, coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother. (laughs) How loving is that? Our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't here. Where can I go now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood, They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. Verse 33, he recognized it and said, It's my, my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So finally, not only do we see the hidden depths of sin and the hidden purposes of God working out a plan of salvation, we see the hidden patterns of grace. Now, I I want us to to look at Joseph's coat for a moment. Was that coat such a bad thing? Now, what Joseph did with it was bad, and and, and I believe that when uh, Jacob gave it to Joseph, the other 11 are going, what are we, chopped liver? And how come you don't give us this kind of gift? How come you don't show us that kind of attention? There was a lot of evil and sin going on here, but ultimately the coat was a good thing. Because why? It was a sign of the Father's approval. Many years ago, my father went to Jurgens and Holtfloor on uh, uh, Wilson Avenue, I don't know where it was, 28th Street maybe in Granville, Michigan, And he bought me a leather coat. That's when people wore leather coats. I still got that leather coat uh, hanging up in my closet. I I didn't know my dad could afford that. He knew I wanted one. He He comes to Zuni and he hands me this leather coat. I gave it to my son for a period of time. He wore it. 
That, that coat was a sign of my father's approval. Now, I know there are problems with this. There are, there are parents who don't necessarily spend time with their kids, show love to their kids, but lavish good gifts on them. The coat was a sign of love. And a man named George Herbert wrote a poem about this called Joseph's Coat. And he came to the realization that suffering in his life could ruin him. And he said, if one grief among my many had its full career, it would carry me uh, with me even my heart. Any trouble or suffering that comes into your life can destroy you spiritually. It can turn you hard and bitter and untrusting of God. But Herbert says, when suffering comes into my life, I get something else. God hath spoiled suffering and given to my anguish Joseph's coat. What did the prodigal son receive from the father? A coat. A coat. And even a coat that would have been destroyed and covered with blood was still a coat that he went back to and said, My father loves me. A token of how much he loves me. But how do you get it? And here's the pattern of salvation in Joseph's life that was so weird to his brothers and yet, I hope becomes clear to us this morning. Because it's so against the world's thinking. But it points to the ultimate pattern of salvation. Centuries later, another one came to his brothers. And they wouldn't receive him. Another one was sold for silver. And here's uh, a gold star. Remember, those of you who are my age... When you were in Sunday school, you gave a right answer and you got a gold star. Here is a gold star moment for you. Joseph was sold to the Midianites for 20 pieces of silver. How many pieces of silver was Jesus sold for? Come on. 30. Yeah, see, you're just playing bashful, but I'm not going to give any gold stars. Just kidding. Another one was sold for silver and betrayed by the people closest to him. There was another one who was stripped naked and abandoned to die, who cried out in the dark, Why have you forsaken me? And nobody heard, nobody came. And that was Jesus Christ. Here a man is crying out for help. Nobody, nobody comes, not right away. But he's coming because Jesus Christ, or God in Jesus Christ, is doing a work in him. There are things that needed to change in Joseph. In order for him to become a true servant of God, he had to be humbled. That arrogance had to be cut out of his life. But Joseph did this not voluntarily. Our Savior came voluntarily. When Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't just physically naked. He was stripped of his father's love. And do you know why? Because he was punished for our sins. When suffering hits you, there will be a deep sense that we all have, and that is, I really deserve some punishment for the way I've lived. And we do. No human being can get rid of that. It's a part of who you are as a human being. And when suffering comes, you will lose any sense of God's love. 
unless you see, here's the one who lost the father's coat, so you could be assured to have it. Here's the one who lost the father's love, paying our penalty so that we could know in spite of our imperfect life, God loves us. When I ask God to accept me because of what Jesus Christ has done, I get the coat. And that coat will never be taken away. I know he loves me. And if you know that means that if now today you're in a pit and you're crying out and you feel completely alone, you're not. Because Christianity is the only religion that even claims that God has suffered. That God has gone into that pit. That God is in the dark beside you. He knows what it's like. Now I want to close with just a couple practical things. Number one, stop being arrogant and stop being cynical. In other words, know and not know what God is doing. In verse 11, Jacob is the only one who has a balanced approach. He stops and he thinks about this. Joseph says, I know what God is doing. He's going to turn me into a prince with no idea of how hard it's going to be, what God has to do in his heart to make him a prince. And his brothers say, oh no, no way this is going to happen. His brothers are saying, this is stupid. They are cynical. He is arrogant. Please, as you live out your Christian life, realize you can know some things and not know some things. And if you think you know what God is doing in your life, put it on, put it on hold. Put it on hold for a long time. I did not believe that I could have a wife because I was unworthy. I didn't believe that anyone could love me. And now that sounds kind of extreme, but I was really there. And it's one of the reasons why I drank the way I did. The only time people would laugh at me was when I was drunk. It was horrible. I had gone a long ways away from God. But I was also thinking that God had forgotten me that God was not at work in my life. But as soon as you say, I think he's doing this, so that eventually I'll be able to do this. But when that scenario falls apart, you might be tempted to say that God is not working. Know that he is working. You just don't know exactly what he's up to. Number two, wear the coat. It's a gift. You get in periods of times... When you feel the presence of God, you feel refreshment, but you need times of contemplation, you need prayer, which isn't just talking to God, but also listening to God. It's dialogue. It takes discipline. It takes the means of grace. This is not not a work. It's just saying, I am putting myself in the place where God can speak to me. Wear the coat. And here's a biggie. Don't be afraid for your children. Every once in a while, you look at your kids and you say, Oh no, they've got flaws in them. And they're from me. And especially from her, pointing to your wife. It's never too late for God's redemption. Joseph's family is the family through which God is going to save the world. Look at it. They're all grown men. They're killing each other. It's never too late. 
And please know this. God's silence is not absence. If you know through the cross that he's beside you and suffered with you, you will be able to, like George Herbert, say, I live to show his power, who once did bring first my joy to weep, but even now is bringing my grief to sing songs of joy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, please show us how we can live our lives wearing the coat of your righteousness and the assurance of your love. The assurance of your love, Father, of your delight in us. We speak it, we tell others about it, but sometimes we just don't believe it. Help us to turn even suffering into joy, even our troubles into wisdom and holiness. And I pray that every person in this room this morning would know that you are at work in their lives. And nothing will separate them from your love and your purposes as the promise of Scripture comes so clearly. The purposes of God will be worked out. Help us to fight the devil. Help us to repent of sin. Help us to do your will. Then help us to humble ourselves before your mighty purposes in Jesus. Amen.